Luke chapter number 12, and we're going to read from verse number one. Happy Father's Day to all you dads. Uh, some good times to think about. I, I wanted to do this and I didn't do it, but someone said a good thing for dads to do was to go up to your kids' bedrooms at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning this morning and say, Happy Father's Day, can I open my presents now? <laughs> like they do us at Christmas time. But then I'd have to deal with them that much earlier, so I let them sleep till about 8 o'clock and then said, get out, get out of the bed. All right, verse 1. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of the people, and so much as they trod upon one another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Let's just stop our reading there, and we'll pick up some more as we go through. And we've read most of this already responsively. But here we have Jesus giving us some discipleship lessons. He's speaking to his disciples, and then there is this great multitude there about living dependent, because that's what discipleship is. Brother Scotty already talked to us about how our God is self-sufficient and all-sufficient. And with that, we understand that our role is to simply be depending upon him who is the owner, the creator, and the provider of all these things. So I want to talk to us about living dependent this morning in regards to the lessons Jesus teaches here. Let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit as he guided Dr. Luke here to do the research and to gather this information that we might be able to read it and to think upon it and to follow this teaching. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us. We sang this morning, and can it be? And often that becomes a thought of our minds. Why would you save us? Why would you forgive our sins? Why would you show us mercy and grace? Can this really be? But it is, and we're thankful. Now, as we think about what our life should look like now, as we point them toward eternity, we're thankful that you give us great instruction on this. May this be an encouragement to the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Discipleship is not us doing the Christian life on our own. I think often that's sort of what it becomes. You know, somebody really gets into their calling. This is what the Lord wants me to do. And the rest of us, it's like we're sending them off to war. We say, all right, <laughs> see ya. Hope, hope it goes well for you. But that's not what it's supposed to be at all. Disciples must trust God and realize that they are accountable to God. Disciples must avoid dependence upon temporal, material, earthly things. Daryl Bach writes, the essence of discipleship is fearing God and putting him first. To share God's priorities is the disciples' call. To learn from God means to follow him. So I want us to take these verses that we have in chapter 12 today, and we're only going to get through the first 12 verses. Now there's some, some great principles after this that we'll talk about. Um, building bigger barns, trusting in earth, earthly riches, seeking first the kingdom of God. But in these first 12 verses here, we get the headings of hypocrisy. We get the heading of fear and then care. Proper fear and improper fear and then what we should be looking for in the care of God. We get the heading of confessing Christ. And that is minced with this idea of being enabled by the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful, wonderful principle 
in Scripture. So let's look this morning in these headings in the first 12 verses of chapter 12, beginning with hypocrisy. Verses 1 through 3. Jesus begins in verse 1 to say, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. So Jesus points this out as the fallacy of the Pharisees. Well, what is a hypocrite? A, a hypocrite is an, is an actor. A hypocrite is one who plays a specific part. These are those hiding their real selves for fear of living dependent upon Christ and being who he forms them to be. Sir Walter Scott wrote these lines, very famous. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. But why do we practice to deceive? Why would any human being not just be themselves? When we study humanity and we study personality, we come to understand that the thing in life that we're often the most insecure about is, is ourselves. And so we find this plaguing discipleship. And Jesus uses the Pharisees here as the example of what not to do as he instructs his disciples. He says, you all need to beware of this leaven, this thing that is very small, but it, it grows and it produces enormous growth among the Pharisees. We've had a lot of time to deal with the Pharisees in our study in Luke. We understand them to be religious authorities in their day. Jesus is transitioning now to the church age, the church model. These apostles are going to be the new Pharisees, so to speak, not in the Pharisaical sense, but in the church leadership sense. And he says, Hey, guys, beware of this leaven. Hypocrisy. Not being who you really are. Putting on airs. Afraid to admit when you mess up. Always acting as if you never sin. Beware of this. Don't play a part. Don't be an actor. The Pharisees pretended to please God while living a self-sufficient life of pride. They, they lived in contempt for others because they had convinced themselves of their own self-sufficiency because of the airs that they put on. They said, well, this is really who we are. And they really looked down on everybody else who wasn't quite as religious as they were. They began to lead others to do just the same. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said, you're, you, you look good on the outside, but you're rotten on the inside. And he tells his disciples here, you need to be aware of this. And he gives them reasons in verse 2 and 3. All that is covered and hidden will be revealed and known. Now, when I was a child, a very pharisaical approach was taken to this verse. And I want to correct some misthinking here. Um, was I the only one? Did you have to watch a film? And it was literally a film. It had reels and the thing ran... And they, they put a sheet up over the baptistry pool in the back of the, the front of the church there. They played this film. And on this film was this whole idea of being ready when the Lord comes or whatever. And part of that film, the part I'll never forget, is all these people standing before God. And there's this enormous throne of God. And there's all these people. And their lives are being played out on a, on a film 
before God. You, you remember this? Some of you other Pharisees in the room here? I'm a recovering legalist. <laughs> but I remember as a kid thinking, oh my goodness. Someday before the throne of God, he's going to tattletale on me to my mama and my daddy for all these things I've done privately and they're going to find out I'll probably get a spanking in heaven. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. I don't think that's what Jesus is meaning to say here. In fact, I know it's not what he's meaning to say here. In fact, if we're to live with this supernatural fear that someday things are going to be quite that given publicly and we're going to be called into account in that way, what would that cause us to live like? Pharisees. If this understanding is true, well then I'm, I'm always going to be just, you know, straight as an arrow. I think it's the opposite. Disciples of Christ in relationship with Christ properly, sins forgiven, not, not being unholy. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But disciples of Christ should be the most real people upon the face of the earth. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And this is not to exploit or put on display our flaws and say, well, you know, by the grace of God. No, but it is to say the good in me by the grace of God, the bad in me I'm working on, God's working on by the grace of God. But being aware, being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, hypocrisy. All that is covered and hidden will be revealed and known. Well, well what does he mean there? Well, we serve an all-knowing God. He is omniscient. You, you probably should fear more that he knows right now in the moment than that he knows someday in eternity. It's not as if God's going to put on the film of your life and say, oh, Chance, did you, did you really do this? No, he's an all-knowing God. So hypocrisy could never work before an omniscient God because he already knows even when you're doing something other than what you're thinking, he even knows your thoughts. I was, I was with a dear friend of mine in, in Georgia a few weeks back and he said that in the moment and it was highly convicting to me. I was asking him about something. He's, he's in business and I was asking him about something in his business and he said to me, he said, well, I'm just going to tell you the truth because if I, if I thought the thought that God knows it anyways, and he didn't say what I wanted to have come out of his brain or out of his mouth through his brain, but then after he spoke that truth, we both concluded, well, hey, this is something to work on then. Isn't that the way to be? Often we can't even be straightforward with each other, though, because I'm afraid of how you'll judge me and you're afraid of how I'll judge you. And then we can't get to the root of things. And all the while, God knows. What are we doing instead? Straighten the tie. Bow the chest. I'm here. It's Sunday. I'm holy. Everything's all right. Maybe it's not. What is Jesus' point here? If hypocrisy can never work before an all-knowing God, well, what should we do then? Live dependent. That's what a disciple of Christ must be. What are we going to eat today, Jesus? How are we going to pay our taxes today, Jesus? Where are we going to sleep tonight, Jesus? What are we going to do about the sick, Jesus? What did Jesus do with all of those things? Let the Holy Spirit of God lead Him into all truth. 
God knows who and how you are. And He still willingly has shown you grace and is is making you like Christ. For some of you, that's harder to believe than others. Joke. Joke. Depend upon Him. Depend upon His omniscience and avoid hypocrisy. Because all you're doing when you play the hypocrite is pretending like in the temporal that eternal God does not know all things. The second heading Jesus gives us here is fear. Verse 4, And I say this unto you, my friends, and, and note that sentiment, Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do, that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear, fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. So Jesus teaches here the fear of God above the fear of man. If, we're, if we'll not play the role of the hypocrite here this morning and be honest, we will all admit that in reality, in the moment right now, we're way more afraid of a person killing us than what God can or can't do with us in eternity. I mean, it's just the truth of the matter. I don't want to die. I don't want to get shot or bombed or kidnapped. I'm a big, goofy guy. I've never thought about being kidnapped. I'd be hard to lug around. (laughs) I guess there are more realistic fears for me in life. But we get so concerned about what other human beings can do to us. And Jesus says here, living dependent upon God is to not be fearful of man. We should fear God above fearing man. And when we fear God properly, our relationship with other mankind, other humans, could be as it should be. Now he calls them my friends here and reminds that the worst in any can do to them is to persecute them for his friendship. That's Jesus' point here. He says, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that can kill the body. Now this is going to become very real in just a few chapters for these guys. Aren't you one of his followers? Yes or no, right? And why would you say no there? Well, you're afraid that they're going to kill your body just like they're about to kill his body. And so Jesus says, Friendship with me is to become the enemy of the world. This is discipleship. But don't be afraid in that moment. Be more afraid of God who can, who can deal with you eternally. This earthly persecution is temporal. Your true fear should be reserved for that which is eternal. Now, I don't preach that to you as if I've mastered this. I still don't want to die. I still fear what men can do to me. But we understand Jesus' point here is to to give better priority to God and the fear of God in this regard. What is Jesus teaching here? Those with Him should be able in this life to operate fearlessly. He's saying... We used to sing the song with the children. Who, who is on the Lord's side? We used to sing in our choir. I am on the winning side. These sort of militant type Christian songs. What are they meant to imply? We win. 
We're on the winning side. The, actually, the, the battle is raging, but the war is over. God will take care of us. In fact, Jesus implies here that God will take care of us even if the world destroys our bodies. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or peril or distress or sword? If God be forced, who could be against us? Now, this fear from verses 4 and 5 is minced with care from verses 6 and 7. In fact, I would say Jesus made 4 through 7 kind of as all one statement. Notice verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more of more value than many sparrows. So he illustrates God's care with the sparrows and the hairs of our heads. Now, in the book of Matthew, we find that two sparrows are sold for a penny. Okay, you shopkeepers in here, accountants, two sparrows, one penny. Now Luke says you can get five for two pennies. So do we conclude that Matthew's wrong and Luke is right, or Luke is wrong and Matthew's right? I don't think so. I think we can conclude that Luke is making the point to take it even further, almost just the, the worthlessness of these sparrows in earthly terms. In fact, sparrows of that day were seen as fine food for the poor. This is what they saw. This is why they were buying them. If you wonder why were you buying two sparrows for a penny, or five for two pennies, wasn't to put in a cage at home and keep his pets. It was so you had some protein to eat that night. But Luke devalues them all the more by saying what? Yes, two for one penny, five for two pennies. If you'll buy four, you get the fifth one free. Don't you like it when the supermarket does that? Now, is this theologically important? Martin Luther did say here, he said the, the sparrow in this passage becomes a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. And he's right. Because what's Jesus' point? Something this insignificant in human terms matters to God. When I was a kid, we used to hear Bill Burr sing, Does Jesus Care? And he would bellow in his baritone voice, oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. If God takes such care of the sparrow, what will he do for us? Luke says, are not five sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God. I mean, you know, you're not even the one that got paid for. You're the one, you're the fifth one thrown in free there. And Luke says, not even that one is forgotten before God. Not one little bird. And then notice how he brings this full circle for you. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Any uh, fact people in here? How many hairs of head are on the av average human head? Do you know? Tyler? Seem like I think Tyler might know. <laughs> they say it's over 100,000. I guess they count, count the holes, you know. But anybody feeling like you got more than that? Anybody feel like you got less? 
Anybody feel like somebody sitting near you's got less? Happy Father's Day. <laughs> I, I know I do this every time this comes up in church, but I got a full head of hair. I got to you know, put out there what I got, right? I can always make Jacob laugh. If I, I can't get anybody else. Thanks, Jacob. If God takes care of the sparrow, what will he do for you? He knows. He knows you. He cares for you to the extent of He knows how many hairs are upon your head. Does that matter? Does it really matter how many hairs are on top of your head? It really does not matter. It's not like you're going to get to heaven and they're going to say, hey, you got shorted. You were 10 short. Here's 10 more. Enjoy this in eternity in your glorified body. The number of hairs on your head is irrelevant. That's the point. God even knows about something that humanly or Divinely speaking, is meaningless, but he knows it because he knows you and he cares about you. Now apply that to anything else in life that you want to. Because while that's the interpretation, there is an unlimited number of applications to that interpretation. Does Jesus care about my health? Does Jesus care about my wealth? Does Jesus care about my family? Does Jesus care about my home? Does Jesus care about my kids? Does Jesus care about... Just fill in the blank. And the answer is yes. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. Riken says here, God knows everything about us. Nothing in our lives is too small for him to notice or so insignificant that it is unworthy of his attention. Praise the Lord. I think it's easy to sit here under this type of thinking and say, yeah, but what about... And you're thinking of that thing that you just just sort of can't get over the hump of. Well, I hope you can see in this passage. That's why it's the issue. Are you being dependent before God, even with that thing? Or is that the thing that you're using to depend upon on whether you're going to be dependent on God? Lord, I give you my all, even this thing. Or is it, Lord, I will give you my all if you'll take care of this thing. That's what the typical American churchgoer, I won't even say Christian, that's their deal with the Lord. Brother Doug testified, well, I've lived a good life. This is what takes me home. This is what takes me home. But if the Lord will heal me, then praise the Lord. This was not a bargain, right, Brother Doug? Romans 8, 31 and 32, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Do you believe according to what Jesus taught the disciples here in Luke that God is for us? What else could we conclude from this? Sparrows that you buy for and you get one free and you've only spent two pennies. Have you priced yogurt lately? Maybe this is not a bad deal. We should all start eating birds, baby. New business idea, Jack. Let's sell some sparrows to people to eat. You're going to need a PR guy, though. I'll just tell you. <laughs> he's numbered the hairs on your head. Oh, he's for you. He's 100% for you. All day, every day. So 
Paul writes to the Romans in, in concluding to that rhetorical question, if God's for us, who can be against us? Here's what else he says. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He, he owns everything. He's created everything. He is everything in and of himself. Thank you, Brother Scotty, for the self-sufficient God that we prayed to this morning. That being, that divine being, cares enough about you that he's numbered the hairs of your head. To measure his care, we understand that he, he won't even let one sparrow fall from the sky without he knowing it. And this God is the one who wouldn't even spare his own son, but freely gave him up for you and I while we were yet sinners. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul's concluding word to the Romans there in chapter 8 is, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What is your qualifying idea on discipleship? God, you can have my all if this. Jesus, I'll live fully dependent upon you except for. What is it? What is the thing? This is not how God lives in regards to you. He said, you know what? I want you to be holy. You're doing a pretty bad job being holy in and of yourself. I'm not even going to wait around for you to even try to be holy. I'm going to go ahead and send Jesus to the world to die on the sin, to satisfy my wrath, to take your sin away. And then at some point in your life, I'm going to smack you with grace and I'm going to save you. Amen. Praise the Lord. This is kind of how all in God is toward you. Does it make you feel bad about how not all in you are toward him? Man, I just want to do more. I want to follow more. I want to do less temporal and more eternal. If I were living in that day, this would kind of make you, if you're Matthew, you know, shut down your tax collecting stand and just start following this guy around. Where are you going, Matthew? I'm going with him. Why? I don't really know, but I am. Still like it's the thing to do. Well, how are you going to pay your taxes? I don't know. I trust he'll figure it out. Hey, Jesus, it's tax day. Hey, let's go fishing then. Oh, I think that's so comical. Because what do we do when we're trying to play hooky from work or school? We go fishing, right? Dennis the Menace style. This is Jesus' solution to paying their taxes. And you and I sit around and worry about rising gas prices and power bills and water bills and all these things. And I get it. I know it's important. I got them too. For most of you, I got more people in my house to pay for all these things for. Most of you. Some of you got me beat big time. We're praying for you. But do we really have to be worried? Why should we worry? Why should we stress? Why should we be anxious? Don't worry about anything. Just pray about everything. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Good song. In verse 5 then, Jesus says to fear God. But in verse number 7, we read that he says to fear not. 
Notice that again. Verse five, but I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So he's saying, fear God. Verse seven, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. So it's a bit contrasting, isn't it? At least from the human perspective. Because from the human perspective, it's a pretty fearful thing to think that there's a deity who can take me material, immaterial, both, either one, and eternally torment me. But at the same time for Jesus, who is this deity, to say, don't worry about it because he likes you more than the sparrows. It's an odd contrast. R.C. Sproul gave the best explanation I could find as I dug around into this. He says, reverential fear of God can set one free from paralyzing fear of the harm that human enemies can inflict. When one recognizes that only he can ultimately inflict destruction and that he who values even sparrows values his human children far more. That's reverential fear of God. The one who can ultimately inflict eternal destruction on you also values you. He numbers your hair on your head. He, he, he doesn't let one sparrow fall from the sky without knowing it. This brings us to confessing Christ in verses 8 through 12. Living dependent on the Son is to confess Him and then be confessed by Him. Notice verse 8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Here again, there's some poor theology that inflicts the church. If you think this means if there's ever been a time where you weren't a witness for Jesus, well then tell me how Peter could preach on the day of Pentecost. That's, that's the solution to that sort of heretical idea here, that this is what Jesus is saying. That if you're ever put on the spot, you won't stand boldly. Uh, Thomas Cranmer is a, is a good, I call it a modern example of this, but uh, during the persecution of the church in England, he was one that he kept seeing other theologians. John Knox would be one, I'm trying to think of others. He was seeing them being murdered for the faith, martyred. And, and he, did not, he denied, he, he, he like refuted. He, he didn't stand firm in his position. Well, he later repented of that and recanted his recantation and was martyred for that. He's a wonderful example of the everlasting grace of our God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not even ourselves. What is Jesus saying here then? If I stand up for Jesus now, he will stand up for me later. This is to state and then live showing that we are fully depending upon him in this life and the next. All we do is for Christ since all that we have is Christ. This is just Jesus saying, depend on me and I will take care of you. You confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. Be a disciple. Live dependent upon me. J.C. Ryle gives this reminder. He says the difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It never was easy at any period. It never will be easy as long as the world stands. 
It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. But whether we like it or not, whether it be hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, Christ must be confessed. Folks, we, uh, we've lived in a blessed era of church history. But as I watch the world around us, unless something drastically changed, and I'm praying for something drastically to change, I believe God can send major movements among the church that will impact the world around them. The Great Reformation, the Great Awakening, certain named revivals, Welsh revivals and all of this. I'd love for the Lord to start a Kingston Springs revival that changed the course of American, if not human history. If He will, He can. But I feel like in the day and age we live, if he don't, more and more and more, what I'm talking to you about this morning will be a little more in our faces than it is right now. Most all of us can live a Christian life as a public disciple of Jesus and it not even really be a thing. But it seems like that's slowly being taken away from us. The proper fear of God will result in the proper boldness before men. I'm not so worried about what you all are going to do to my body as I am what he will do with my soul. Then in verses 10 and 12, Jesus teaches that living dependent upon the Spirit means to be defended by him. Verse 10, And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemous against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven And when they bring you into the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what thing ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Here again, another misunderstood or mistaught thing in Scripture. People take these verses and want to get into this idea of an unpardonable sin and all of these things. There's a tinge of this here, but it's it's not exactly what Jesus' point is. In fact, he fills out his point in verse 11 and 12 if we could get ourselves past verse 10, but often we don't. What does he mean in verse 10? Well, he says, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, who is the Son of Man? Jesus. It shall be forgiven him, but unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost it shall not be forgiven. So what does it mean to blaspheme? To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to speak against the Holy Spirit's power. In the immediate context of this passage, it has just been accused of Jesus that you are doing these miracles in the power of who? Satan. Whose power was Jesus doing these miracles in? The power of the Spirit. So he's pointing out here, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit who's done such things. I'll give you this on a much simpler measure but on more common terms and easily understandable often my wife will make a dinner and aunt redonna lives next door and often aunt redonna will come over and have dinner and bring some things to the dinner i'm a man i'm not always paying attention to these things so we'll have this meal and i'll say to my wife what a great meal you cooked dear not knowing that aunt redonna brought anything to the meal and i'll say especially this cornbread might be the best you've ever made to which my wife will say oh aunt redonna made the cornbread Now I'm in a two-way mess here, aren't I? 
I blasphemed the good cooking of Aunt Rodonna by giving my wife credit for it. And then I blasphemed the good cooking of my wife every other time she'd ever made this cornbread. This is what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus as he performed these miracles. He cast this demon out of this guy in chapter number 11. They said, you're doing this through the power of Beelzebub. Well, Jesus calls him to account here and says, I'm doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit by accusing it being done in the power of Satan. Robert Stein defines blasphemy as a hardened attitude toward God and unrelenting opposition to what he is doing through his spirit and leading individuals to faith. In our day, this is as simple as denying the power of the spirit in relation to Christ. So for sure, it can mean what a lot of people try to make it out to always mean. You cannot be forgiven if you will not be forgiven. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the most simple uh, senses would be to, to put him off in regards to salvation. Now that gets into a whole other can of worms. I understand that. We can, we can deal with theology proper later if you'd like to. But the point I need you to understand is that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, he's just saying, you're miscrediting the power. And the power is in the Holy Spirit. Now that, can't, that won't be forgiven you. Now, why does he need to say this? Well, because in verse 11 and 12 then, he's pointing out the beauty of the Holy Spirit-filled life. When they bring you into the synagogues, he doesn't say if. He says to his disciples here, if you are my disciples, this will happen. They're going to bring you into the religious places. They're going to bring you into the civic places, the places of power. And when they do, take no thought how or what thing you shall answer or what you shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. So what is Jesus' point of the beauty of the Holy Spirit-filled life? It's a life with no anxiety. It's a life full of comfort and surety. Now, this is not Jesus saying, don't worry about reading the book. Because if you ever need it, the Holy Ghost will just give it to you and you'll be able to say it. No. There's 57 other verses to refute that verse, right? Well, this is Jesus saying, whether in moments unexpected or in study time preparing, the Holy Spirit will teach you God's word. And should you get in a place where religious authorities or civil authorities are bringing you into account for your faith, he will evermore be with you and bring to mind the things from this word that you do need to say. What a, what a, what a blessing. To not have that stress, to not have that anxiety, to be able to say, I'm going to live fully dependent upon Christ. Not playing the hypocrite. Not fearful of men and what they may do to me. Well, how can I be this way? Because Jesus has promised his Holy Spirit as my teacher and my guide all along the way. It's a unique set of verses. If you'll notice with me a, a, a simple outline. Verses 1 through 7 teach us that we can trust God. Verses 8 and 9 teach us that we can trust Jesus. And verses 10 through 12 teach us that we can trust the Holy Spirit. What a blessing to be able to trust God. So I'd end today by asking, are you living a life dependent upon Christ? 
Often instead we live depending upon ourselves. So the sermon from Jesus this morning is avoid hypocrisy. Avoid living fearful. Be rightfully fearful of God. Trust in Him for your care. Confess Christ in word and in deed and to be dependent upon His Holy Spirit. Would you stand and respond with me?